Welcome to Engineering Stories, a podcast presented and produced by Silver Fox and the Institute of Engineering Technology. Engineering Stories is an opportunity for those experienced within the industry to tell their tale, with the hope it might inspire and encourage the engineers of the future. Episode 1 sees hosts Alex and Connor speak with Chief Petty Officer Pete Spain. Pete has been serving in the Royal Navy for the last 17 years and after joining the Navy has studied engineering management and has an MSc in professional engineering. Pete offers up some fantastic stories and insights on his unlikely route to becoming a leading engineer in his field, including why he chose the Navy over other armed forces, what it's like to do a part-time degree whilst aboard a ship and the perks of working as an engineer in the Navy. So without further ado, let's get cracking. Welcome to Engineering Stories. I'm Alex Michelson. I currently work for Silver Fox as the Head of Research and Development. And with me today is... Connor Maringolo. Um, I'm a University of Kent student uh, studying Electronic and Communications Engineering. And we have our guest today, uh, Pete Spain. Hi, yeah, my name's Chief Petty Officer Pete Spain uh, with the Royal Navy. Um, so, uh, Pete, I think the really what everyone will want to know first is like, why did you go into the Navy originally? What was the purpose of that? Um, so it sort of happened by accident, really. It's all my family were been in the Navy. They served in the Falcons in Northern Ireland. My dad did it. Um, and I'll be honest, I had absolutely no interest in the Navy whatsoever. But the school I went to was from quite a rough area, and um, they didn't generally turn out university um, sort of candidates. They most people went there, expected that you were going to go into the trades afterwards, or if you were joining the military, you sort of joined the army. And um, I did a lot of army cadets in sort of younger days, and my um, my intention was actually to join the army straight up. I was looking at joining the uh, Royal Green Jackets. Um, and the weird thing was, when I was about 14, 15, it occurred to me I had really bad hay fever, <laughs> of all things. And uh, my 15-year-old logic was there's no trees and fields at sea. So um, I went to Luton Careers Office and inquired about the Navy. And initially, when I went in there, I wanted to be an aircraft handler. Um, I mean, they're literally 15 years old. I'd be 16 by the time I joined. And they were advertising for people to tow Harrier jump jets around the flight decks of aircraft carriers. I thought that's going to be amazing. Um, and they told me, no, you don't want to do that. It's a waiting list for that. So you want to be a gunner instead. And I mean, I'm 15. I think this is great. I'm going home and playing Goldeneye on the N64. This is amazing. Um, so I did that. And I ended up joining up in 2004 as an operator maintainer. Um, an operator maintainer is basically a jack of all trades. So the idea is... If you were an armourer, you'd be an armourer, so you could deal with your own kit and keep everything in one. And the, the reality of what actually happened with the operator maintainer sort of stream was you became so thinly spread with so many roles and responsibilities from all the different branches you'd encompassed that it just didn't really work. So jack of all trades and master of none. Um, so, yeah, engineering sort of was a bit of a branch transfer later on that was forced upon me. Um, uh, that happened by accident. It's probably one of the best things that ever did happen, really. Um just as a, like a little bit of a, a, a span when you were doing the um jack of all trades kind of thing was there a particular um like uh, task or job that you particularly enjoyed doing in comparison to the other ones and opposite that which one did you hate most <laughs> um so what had happened is they'd amalgamated the sort of deck branches the seamanship branches um that came into gunnery um and i absolutely loved the sort of electronic side of things just fixing and receiving things yeah. so it was like a a gunner initially you're kind of like a warfighter but that doesn't happen every day and so you think you're going to be shooting guns every day that doesn't happen either so what you get left with is all the jobs that nobody else wants such as cleaning 
So as, as a junior and a lower level, you find you're a glorified cleaner. I'm, I'm not impressed with this. But with the engineering side of things, you, you're fixing things that need fixing. You're not just doing tasks for the sake of it or to keep you busy. It's, mm. You're fixing stuff that's broken that needs to be repaired. And that was where the sort of real job satisfaction came. Yeah. Um, I think in 2006, I ended up in Afghanistan uh, attached to the Royal Marines. Um, and I was completely out of trade in the role I was doing out there. And while I was away, the Navy had a complete reorganization of stuff. And when I came back, um, I walked into the dockyard, sort of early 2007, and the branch badge on my arm was wrong. It was an old branch badge. And the first thing I did was got shouted at for that. And um, eventually found out I'd been recatted. <laughs> I'd been reclassed a weapons engineer. So the, the training had carried over before. Um, and it was very sort of basic level as, as the Navy. We were doing really a lot of Ohm's Law stuff, electrical safety and things. And it kind of grew from there, really. Um, hmm. I went and joined a minesweeper as um, as a junior engineer, as, as it's called a gunner's yeoman, so especially the armourer. And I looked after sort of basic communication systems and stuff at the time, potentially fixing phone lines and cleaning guns. But cool. it all sort of grows from there. You kind of yeah, start yeah. right down at a low level. And, yeah, it's really grown from there and taken off. Hmm. Oh, okay. So, go on, at the time of uh, being made coming back from afghanistan and being made a uh, an armorer how did you feel about going into engineering at that point um i absolutely loved it i didn't really understand about it i didn't know about professional registration sort of um it's really weird the school the school i went to uh, before i joined up um it's, it's, it's sort of like a childhood rivalry thing we, we, we looked down at people who went to university or mm. it was just different it was something that other people did that wasn't uh, accessible to us so you kind of mocked yeah. it mm. um and then all of a sudden it's right you're doing a hnd and the navy kind of forces upon me i was fi- finding myself turning up for a course without fully understanding what i was doing and at the end there's a hnd or there's a btech or you're now on an apprenticeship and you'll get signed up for it um i really enjoyed it i loved it um basically i was just problem solving every day and I mean, people as a hobby problem solve for fun with puzzle books and mm. stuff like that. And so every day I really enjoyed, I didn't enjoy when people broke things. That was rather annoying. But <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I generally enjoyed um, just problem solving every day and making things work and getting that satisfaction when you flash something back up and it actually bursts into life and not bursts into flames. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just, just, just job satisfaction of it, really, of actually seeing things work and pulling stuff off. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's what I enjoy the most, the satisfaction. Uh, you you mentioned um, you mentioned about uh, like in in your school, like uh, you kind of like mocked university, etc. Um, would have you now that you kind of have the experience that you have now? Would have you taken a different route in any kind of direction, like maybe straight to engineering and then to the navy again, or would have it been a little different for you if you now have what you know now? So knowing what I know now, and I mean, I've got kids of my own, so I'm pushing them towards uni. It was just at the time, uh-huh. it just wasn't a door that was open. It was something that other people mm, did. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, some kids go to school when they know they're going to be a doctor and they're going to go to sixth form and they're going to do that. Yeah. yeah. And um, other schools are like, you're lucky to get out of life. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, for, for my kids, I would be pushing them and the younger like engineers and stuff. Definitely. Yeah. Um, don't get qualified, uh, get involved with an apprenticeship. I mean, there's so many routes of doing it. Get involved yeah, in an apprenticeship exactly. Or get into a firm that will push you up through it and sponsor you to go. Or if you really like, if you're really set on it, sort of set your goals early um, mm-hmm. and then work out all the steps, work out what A-levels you need, what six-form stuff you've got to do, what college stuff you need, and, and map that pathway. Would you recommend the Navy as a, as a route or even any of the armed forces as a route engineering. to engineering? Definitely, yeah, it just grows you. 
uh, it, it grows you and you're always sort of in, in the Navy, you're always training for your boss's job. So um, it's, you, 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 it's very hard to feel stagnant in an area where, I don't know, like you, you go in some industries and the managers feel threatened because you're chasing their mm. job. In the Navy, that's not the case. The manager's training you because they want you to be their relief because mm. they're doing the same thing and they're pushing for their boss's job. So it's a constant stream of development. It's a clear career path for, for an engineer than in, in like an armed form, forces then. So it's a clear Definitely, ladder. Yeah. Yeah, you'll know you're going to start as an engineer, and that is the mm -hmm. basic jobs, and then you're going to become a leading engineer, then a petty officer engineer, then a chief engineer, and then you can keep going and going and going. And, and what are you now? Sorry? I'm a, I'm a chief engineer. I'm a chief, chief petty engineer. officer. Chief okay. engineer. Um, does, does the Navy have a limit to non-commissioned officers? Like the rest of the armed no, forces? No, it's two sort of completely separate streams. So you go to the careers office and you apply for one or the other based on your background. So if you've already got A-levels, already reached a certain standard, um, you would go for that. If you're walking into the careers office with just GCSEs, then you start at the bottom and work your way up. Mm. But you can transfer across at any point. Okay. Uh, I've chosen not to just because I've already served 17 years um, mm. and I want to sort of move on into sort of senior engineering in, in industry and see what else is out there, really, because I've, I've been in uniform since I was five years old. Um, I just... I just want to see what else is there. Yeah. So if I was to do that, you're starting a completely separate ladder again. Um, speaking speaking of that kind of area, um, like in terms of like R and D, uh, did you work on anything like cool in, that you can talk about in this kind of area? Um, so there's nothing sort of specific. Um, as non-commissioned, you're you're a maintainer. Um, mm. You're not a designer, but all the training you do is very much design based. So it teaches you how to build stuff, and it's just so that. If you're in an operational circumstance, so when when you're in like a peacetime circumstance, you're following all the rules, you're following your part 19 and to the letter. But in an operational circumstance, you need to make things work and just find mm. a way. So the idea is to be able to understand the safety aspects so well you can use your judgment to break every rule going and do it safely to make stuff work. Yeah. So yeah. if you've not got a part, what can I take apart to find something close mm. that will make that work? Um, I don't know, like a traveling waveguard tube at TWT. If I need a heater make a cathode can, mm. I, can i get that out of the toaster yeah it's, it sounds crazy and if you offer that up in a factory you'd probably get thrown out the door but you really really need to make it work how can i temporarily sort this out i think that's um, a very unique thing for industry though as in like for uh, people students and yourself for example to have the ability to do that so for example my, myself i probably would sit there if someone said to in the heater and to toast i'd be like uh, i don't know about that <laughs> i just yeah, kind of move like, on that's very irregular but, this can't be done and if yeah, you design yeah, it yeah, yeah exactly you design it properly and you carry spares but sometimes it's scrappy challenge and it's like i just need to i just need to yeah. what's main result i need to generate heat right okay how am i going to do that that's an amazing or, or, feat yeah what else does that and mm. what power supply does it I'd, need i'd like to think that's proper engineering hmm yeah, I mean, we've had stuff before where um, a navigation computer went down and it took five or six different power supplies. And so we went around pushing people's laptops. Um, <laughs> and we sell the bricks because you've got a 12-volt brick, a 24-volt brick. Yeah. Um, like someone's current charger might be five volts. And so we just literally strapped them all together and got all these outputs. Um, and, and it worked. And it looked like the most cowboy thing you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> but it, it's real engineering. It's satisfaction when it works. And it's like, okay... The real stores will turn up soon. The spares will get here eventually, but this this works now. Was and... was there was there ever a situation for you um, where um, you really realised that you had to do that kind of like? What was your first experience in that situation like? Because obviously, I can imagine your first time doing that, you probably thought, "Yeah, this is impossible," and you had to do something about it. What 
what how what it's, can you yeah is there anything yeah that comes i mean to it's, mind? it's crazy because you'll probably see photos of stuff that people have done and then you'll see them on social media mm. everyone's going oh that's not regulation oh no it's definitely not <laughs> <laughs> um operationally we do it quite a lot there's been periods where we've been at sea um uh, things I wouldn't say kicked off, but incidents have happened in a way you, you, your spares aren't coming. Your help isn't coming. There isn't a backup system. So it's mm. like, okay, I just need to make this work. Um, and yeah, it's happens quite often really, but it's worth mentioning. It's only ever a temporary thing. Cause when you do get back into port, you have to put it right. Yeah. Of it's that sort of limp yourself home mode. There's still Emergency a lot of kind of situation. Definitely. I mean, 20 years ago, somebody would have said, I oh, will put some tights around the fan belt in a car. And, and it works and yeah. you get to a garage and you put the proper belt on and back then it was all innovative and if you said now that you've got bodged your engine in your car people would be like why crazy <laughs> the, the warranty you can't do that <laughs> when you've got to you've got to yeah warranties have, are more valuable done... than the car themselves yeah yeah definitely <laughs> and, and it's interesting it's breaking things apart butchering and reverse engineering stuff it's brilliant mm. and that sort of R&D is just on the go I'd like to say there's a plan behind it but there's not um the R&D I've done with the unis, um, that's been really interesting. So the sort of class of ship I'm working on is reaching the end of its life. I'm on mm-hmm. the, uh, they've been in service since the 80s. And mine sweeping, mine hunting. Well, mine sweeping has gone replaced by mine hunting. And in the future, ships won't do that. AUVs will do that. There'll be a mothership launching very small vehicles that will just go and deal with that. So to sort of future-proof my own skill set, um, I've chosen to study AUVs. Mm-hmm. And the first R&D I did was with Staffs University, um, and I developed an AUV from cradle to grave, the whole concept. Um, okay. And just basically uh, built that. And where that failed was that that couldn't be weaponized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the struggle there was we couldn't weaponize it. So it sounds crazy. It's If I'm building an AUV and I want it to go and blow up mines, well, it's got to carry its own bombs, or it's got uh-huh. to carry stuff that you can't really lose or lay out your mm-hmm. site. So for the masters, um, I looked into um, the feasibility of basically upgrading and modifying sonar transducers to use ultrasonic radiation to set off mines. So oh, wow. can we use ultrasounds um, to set off pressure waves? Really, uh, can we create the right wavelength that will cause shock and friction inside explosives wow. to set so mines off? What was the uh, what was the conclusion of that research then, or is there still yet to be one? Uh, the conclusion of that dissertation is it's really easy to do in a lab, nearly impossible to do in real world. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, too many, too many variables, basically. I guess yeah, density of water, density of the salt water comes into it. Everything is hundreds of different types of explosives and manufacturers and batches and their age, how long they've been in sea. Do, do you uh, see that? Your prop- do you see that as a future application, though? Do you see that possibly? Pushing, yeah. Like in the future, we might get to see something like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with ultrasound, so the first thing you'd expect that you'd sort of think of is a, like, like an ultrasound scanner for a pregnancy scan. Um, but in the medical world, they've scaled that down into nanotechnology, and they're actually using yeah. ultrasound to um, destroy cancer cells at a nanotech level. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of mixing the two. It's like, well, if I've got a, a sound transducer, can we make it do ultrasound? And what frequency and how much power do I need to cause a pressure wave in water to agitate? Um, an explosive to the fact that we, where we can set it off. Basically, you're making its environment untenable, um, which can be done. And if you know exactly what the explosive is, the exact range, the exact type of medium yeah. you're in, which is great, but the the water changes from one minute to the next. What uh, so? What, what range did you get it at? As in, in terms of the, in ter- you said in lab experience, in, in the lab, it um, you you could do it and you could reproduce it. What kind of ranges were you kind of using at that point? So you you need about a hundred meters to protect yourself. 
Oh, okay. um, obviously, the vehicles are going to get launched away, yeah. um, but it's in the water, so it's fine. It would recover itself, take a GPS fix, figure out where it is, where it ended up, and if it's still alive, and then carry on inside of that. So the idea is you basically start quite close and you build up intensity and you back away. Um, mm. And so we're looking at about 50 to 100 metres um, yeah. to get to cause the right wavelengths, which would be the same as a pressure wave that the detonator would cause. So what you're trying to do is simulate the pressure wave the detonator causes via sound waves. Yeah, no. <laughs> Basically. Um, <laughs> does that get harder or easier as the bombs get older? Harder, because you've got no predictability of what you're working on. Um, so, I mean, uh, a lot of the background research I did onto the AUVs was what's left in the ocean from World War II, and there's something like 50 million pieces of unaccounted wow. ordnance kicking around from World War II. If you think that's mines that were laid or aircraft that went down that still had ammunition on board, ships that went down with explosives on board, every individual sort of bullet that's in the ocean, there's areas that can't be fished. Um, mm. And we're still working to clear that now. But so the idea is, can I just send a robot on task and leave it, leave it to get on with the job? Um, with When you said about uh, this, for example, your R&D project, um, this was for your master's, correct? Or your undergrad? Um, it's for the bachelors, and, okay. then for the, and then basically I tried to solve all the problems I couldn't solve mm. in the bachelors within the masters. So Would I mean, you... the AUV, the technical, the physical side of it's easy. Um, software mm. side is a different world. Um, mm. And then like the weaponizing was a nif- different issue. And you, you're looking at energy storage, regeneration, power. Mm. So we they went went into the darkest depths <laughs> of battery chemistry, um, and power regeneration, and yeah. Would you? Um... <laughs> Would you consider, obviously, either now or in the future to pursue a PhD in this kind of area? Would you really go for the extra mile and yeah. <laughs> keep going? Yeah. Um, so I've been given approval to have a go at a PhD next year. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, my application got rejected this year, but I literally um, I wrote the application about three days and forced it through. Um, yeah, and yeah. I guess it's people that have spent years or months of being course. coached to write them. So it was quite a weak application, I believe, in response, but the planning time was very short. But yeah, I'm looking at um, a PhD in robotics and autonomous systems. Oh, brilliant. Um, so, yeah, I just I really want to get involved with that, really. It's, it's generally, you know, I, mean, I get excited when I read about it. It's passionate, so I could enjoy it every day. I'm sure when I'm in the second year of Fourier Transforms, I really won't enjoy it. But, uh, yeah, um, no. <laughs> I think there's only a certain kind of person that enjoys Fourier Transforms. No, whilst we're blowing stuff up, it's brilliant. Um, when you go back to the maths, it's horrible. Yeah, when you're sat when you when you're sat in an exam and there's no minds around, it's get it gets a bit awkward because you you don't have any yeah, real life like, thing to look the, at. The practical side of it, right? The coursework, the dissertations are design. It's trying to regurgitate the maths in an exam condition. Exactly. Prove this. Yeah, I feel it. It works. I, trust yeah. me. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm. I'm more. I'm more of a. Um, I'm more of a practical person than an ex- exam. Like my my coursework's are normally like ninety to a hundred percent, and then as soon as I enter the exam, it's ah fifty to sixty percent. Oh, there you go. You'll now average t- t- to a first. That's great. Like it's a. It's always that, but I think, like for example, for robotics, um, like when you want to go into that, like um, I know, like I'm electronics and communications, but when I was looking around for robotics, they're all coursework based, and it's like it's like your perfect thing. It's just like it's fantastic just to kind of do all the practical it's, stuff. Yeah, it's your exam is just put on the table what you've built. Yeah, and does it, it does it work? Behind the yeah. planning stage, <laughs> the thing is, even if it doesn't work, it's still a pass. Even if it doesn't yeah, yeah. work, you can prove why. Yeah, you've got it. I mean, 
I had, I had massive failing points on both my dissertations mm. that wasn't a failure, but I proved that it's not feasible. Yeah, and, so and actually, nothing... mm. I saved someone else a lot of time. Yeah, and and nothing ever is supposed to work. Like not everything is supposed to work that you try and do because at the end of the day, if you do a PhD, your PhD might like you might get your PhD, but you might have proved not really a whole lot. But it's the whole analysis of what you've done and what where you're going is the really important thing. Oh, it's without saying the word journey and being cringy. It's everything you've learned <laughs> on the journey. <laughs> oh, I said journey. Um, but yeah, it's everything you learn along the way. It's, yeah, no, yeah. She's just brilliant. Mm. Um, I mean, oh, I've, I've literally ended up in my garage playing with Lego, trying yeah. to sort of, um, I just gave up a cat. So I'm like, right, let's do this with Lego and see if we can conceptualize <laughs> this. This podcast is produced by the IUT and Silver Fox. Silver Fox manufacture and supply cable, wire and pipe labels for a variety of sectors around the world, including rail, data, power, construction, renewable energy, oil and gas and more. The company has been in operation since 1977, proudly manufacturing all products here in the UK and shipping them globally, either direct or via their ever-growing network of distributors. For all of your labelling needs, please contact sales at silverfox.co.uk or call us on 01707 373727 what was your life like overseas how how because obviously most engineers just kind of get go to an office sit down chill out and they just do their thing but i can imagine being overseas is a whole different world um, i've loved it it's an emotional roller coaster to be fair it's it's insane it's um you know some days i've, I've been south scotland and i've been there for a month and i absolutely hate the job uh, they don't want to play this game anymore, especially if you've had like a C state six or C state eight, and you've just felt sick every day and thought, "What am I doing?" But then other days, yeah, I'm sat on a beach in Dubai having a stand down with a cocktail <laughs> in my hand, thinking, "Yeah, I'll, I'm quite content to get paid for this." Um, <laughs> it's, it's a complete roller coaster. Um, the work life balance is hard. Um, mm. It's definitely had an effect. Um, I, I go away for six to eight months at a time, and I've done that probably every 18 months for, for the last 17 years. So it's certainly, it certainly adds up. It puts stresses and strains on lots of your social life, domestic life and stuff like that. But Something to get used it, to as well, I imagine. Definitely, yeah. It's, I, I, it's weird, I'm completely sort of used to it now. And I, I live my life in blocks. So I, I go to work for a few months and don't come home. And then I come home for a few months and mother half gets absolutely crazy with me because I've come back and changed everything coming the way. Um, <laughs> your weekends i mean even now i'm down in portsmouth i travel to lancaster every weekend mm. just to sort of go home so but i enjoy it i don't know it's, it's like productive time on the train and stuff it's, it's useful but at sea it's an absolute absolute roller coaster i mean I, i've been to places that like my peers would have never been i've been to places i didn't even know exist until i got there i've never heard of them like um, like <laughs> wow um so i think when i was 18 i was on hms york and um the ship I joined initially decommissioned and I was flown out there and literally I just got given a ticket to Hong Kong. So like, right, go to Hong Kong and join New York. Like, wow. Okay. So I'm sort of 18. Um, I'm in Hong Kong. I'm in Singapore. I'm in Vietnam. Um, and then we sailed back and stopped everywhere on the way. So through the Suez Canal, um, Oman, Muscat, Suda Bay, Cyprus, you cut up through and you drop into Malta, um, into Italy, Valletta, La Spezia, Spain, Mm. Gibraltar and this is just and you, you're dropping in for a couple of days every week so it's like your weekend is a completely different country and right. especially being young um, and back then the ships were staggered ships were male only and we've come such a long way since then um, it's much much more inclusive now um, but at the time it was just a big stag do that went on forever and you, you turn <laughs> up to work and 
<laughs> you go to work, you do your job, and you be as professional as you could. Um, yeah. But come four o'clock, you realise like, oh, who's going for a drink tonight? Where are we? Oh, we're in Singapore. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> let's go and explore. Let's go and find out what's what's here. It's it's brilliant. It's the experiences. Um, mm. I think uh, we, we had an engine failure. We got stuck in Dubai for six weeks once. Uh, terrible. Um, <laughs> worst places. Yeah, we ran out of money. <laughs> <laughs> what was your favourite boat to ship to be on? Uh, my favourite ship is the Minesweepers. I've been on almost all of them um, in some capacity from a junior engineer to the head of engineering all the way up um and it's at the stage now where i know everything about them ships backwards i can i can quote fuse box numbers and valve numbers off the top of my edge um and i do enjoy them because they're such a small community there's only 46 people on those and you're Mm. quite a tight-knit team it's really small when everyone's friends with everyone it's all first name terms uh the bigger ships are a lot more formal a lot more structured but they're still brilliant in their own rights absolutely uh, absolute wonder of engineering marvel because a ship shouldn't work it does. It's do someone thought let's get a metal box and fill it with electrics and fuel and explosives and we'll put it on the sea and throw it about and hope no one gets hurt. And no one does. <laughs> it, it just works. It's brilliant. <laughs> but when you think about it, you're like, yeah, that's that's definitely dodgy. <laughs> when um when you were saying that you uh, were traveling and it like, wh- what was your favorite place? What was the one place you kind of stands up out from the rest, and why? Um... <laughs> Not to grill you. <laughs> it's weird you know i've done done the far east done the middle east uh, done a bit of south america i've done all the baltics most of europe and out of all of that of all the i could say like the cayman islands or i could say the seychelles or something crazy like that but i'm gonna say malta oh really malta's absolutely amazing my favorite country in the world <laughs> if you offered me to go and live there tomorrow i would snap your arm off and go <laughs> <laughs> um in in reference to your uh, university experience um obviously you've come from like the navy already you, you're already kind of already in the engineering mentality what was it like to kind of sit down with people that are like learning and like you, you've obviously got way more experience in that sense as in and you're learning with students is was there any like different could you notice a difference between you and them or was it kind of you just kind of went along with it and kind of just integrated where it, like what was it like um so, so I think the important thing was it was all distance learning, the majority of it. Mm-hmm. Um, probably only spent two or three days inside the physical campus. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it's you sort of look at, I don't know, you look at a lot of reading materials, a lot of textbooks. Uh, I, th- I think it's different because I can see the physical application. Or I mean, a lot of my masters I researched, a lot of the oceanography stuff. Um, we were off the coast of Bandar Abbas, off, we're off Iran. Um, so that was my classroom, um, <laughs> which is it was completely different because... Yeah, I'm looking at a textbook, I've downloaded a PDF, I'm having a good read-through stuff, I can just literally stick my head out the window and see the practical application or go and find a piece yeah. of machinery on board that relates to this. And you also really don't need a visual background. It. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've already got the nice, it's, nice view. It's, it's, it's quite weird because, I, I mean, the way that people have been working since COVID with the Zoom calls and everyone, and like how we're talking now, um, I, I've been running that way for years. Mm. sort of thing um but it was just interesting when i when i went so i went into the university to give a couple of presentations and present a few of my dissertations and stuff and yeah it was just just different i would have loved to have gone properly and experienced a proper freshers week um <laughs> by the sounds of it you had that every weekend on yeah, a boat yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it'd be a bit um, of a disappointment to be honest <laughs> yeah it's, it's hard to say because I, I didn't really get to um mm interact with that many people i mean we had some whatsapp groups and some like cohort meetings and stuff mm. but even then it was other distance travelers so i don't 
it's strange that even though I had the sort of ID card and I was talking, I was had the Skype calls with the electors and stuff. I didn't really experience it that much to be able to answer that question properly. Mm. I don't think. Um, so, what do you think the hardest challenge was then when you were at uni? Oh, I think a lot of my time management because it was all sort of evenings and weekends and stuff and doing that. And it was finding my, finding the will to motivate myself off site because you almost forget you're doing it. And then it's like, oh, I need a quick. <laughs> You, you look at it out of that world, that world of panic, and you realise you're seven thousand words behind. And how am I going to do this in a weekend? Um, <laughs> uh, that, that was that was quite hard. It's uh, the, like the formatting and stuff. So we, we've got defence writing in the military. So the way I read and write is to a very specific format, um, and I had to completely change all of that for the academic world. And just learning about simple things. So I was quite happy with the um, with the engineering and learning about that, mm. but referencing was oh, something yeah. I was picking up yeah. on day one. Whereas people have got used to that through sixth form and they've been sort of learning and coached a lot of the basics. Just, oh, I mean, like the, the life skills and the content was one thing, but the ways of, just the ways of working and the universities and sort of, uh, I don't know, um, like with the lecturers and stuff, I was trying to figure out a rank structure of a being a professor and a doctor. And <laughs> yeah. well, who's in charge here? But it's all just slightly different. I'm looking for a very sort of binary structure that wasn't there. Mm. But yeah, it was just sort of, spotting out those differences because it is sort of one respective you're trying to bring something to the party for your own experiences but then again you don't really want to tread on people's toes and change the wheel so it's yeah. just trying to find where that diversity of thought kind of fits in nicely and on connor's note what was the hardest challenge in your career was it going to university while balancing or was it something else i think it's just trying to get a life balance is the hardest there's been there's been hundreds of little tasks that have been difficult i mean if um I could I could think about something physically. I, I remember I replaced the same radar three times on a ship that kept breaking. And there have been days where stuff's broken and you can't fix it. And it's sat there with your head in your hands going, I don't know what to do to make this work. But I think it's more of a personal level than like more of an emotional level, really. It's um, I went back to sea when my youngest was, well, three months old. And I disappeared for eight months. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's that family life it's trying to maintain a marriage maintain a family maintain a relationship and a bond with your children and stuff when you're you're going to work and coming back a year later yeah that, that's that's definitely the hardest part because you can't do that by skype you can try but you can't <laughs> it's do you get a lot of support in that retrospect as in obviously the armed forces kind of that's the kind of thing that you have to deal with through your whole like career do you get a lot of support in terms of not only the career figuring out the radar for example and you've got your head in your hands but in terms of your family life do you do you feel like you get a lot of support in that in that yeah respect? we've got family services um people do understand sometimes mm. you get a boss that's very career driven and still single um they don't quite get it when mm. you say I, i've got a school run to do yeah you know i need to be somewhere else um, and other times you get you get other family oriented people around you and it's really good mm, yeah, um, yeah I, in general i would say the support's there and it's quite weird because the managerial styles we learn so at the moment i'm the head of the i'm the head of the engineering department i've got a sort of a medium-sized team underneath me but there's pastoral care in there as well that you'd oh. almost sort of find in a boarding school where you wouldn't get in any other industry really it's, okay Yes, I mean, we'll go to sea and I might have like an 18, 19 year old working for me who's expecting a child, but he can't get home for that because he's stuck on the wrong side of the world. Uh, we had issues like that with COVID. Um, mm. You've got people that, because when you finish your day at work, you don't go your separate ways to go home. You're still on the ship together. Yeah. So that, that, that sort of family side of life. Um, but yeah, if someone's had a death in the family or people are going through their own difficulties and stuff, 
and you're, you've got to try and monitor that as well. And obviously, you can't get involved on a personal level, but if you're at sea with somebody for six months and their world's falling apart back home, it's I'm going to spot that change in behavior and actually look after them as well. Mm. So from a managerial side of things, it's a completely different aspect. Instead of knocking off at five o'clock and I'll see you tomorrow and what you do in your own time is your business. Because it, although you try and keep your business, it has to, it bleeds in. It can't be any other way. Yeah. So it's it's trying to appreciate and look after other people and spot that change in mentality, spot that change in behavior and asking, are you all right? <laughs> um, and you, I, I expect the people above me to ask that question as well. And yeah. in hindsight as well, the guys that work for me have said, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I've been awake for three days. <laughs> <laughs> so have you been on deployment during COVID? Have you got yeah. out? Yeah, I was away um, when it all started last year. Um, and so I was away from the March to the August and we came back to a COVID world. We came back to isolation. Yeah. Um, it changed everything because we used to go from port to port. That would just make you a spreader. So actually, um, like we got alongside in place and the gangways were closed. You weren't allowed to ship. So that, that, that made the deployment a lot longer. Uh, certainly made it feel mm. a lot longer. Um, and yeah, I'm putting in restrictions and stuff and trying to figure out how to social distance on a ship with reconditioned air. Um, yeah, there's like hundreds and hundreds of challenges that we just have to figure out as we went along and overcome them. What, um, what area do you, th like in terms of your opinion, let's say um, for yourself now, what kind of industry do people go into as engineers from them um, like what where do you end up aiming towards if you were to leave the military so if you if you have colleagues that have left where do they uh, normally go engineering somehow a lot of it's defense engineering the big firms bae um Cal defense, Hughes, okay. stuff like that. a lot of the big players uh they, they move across to there um and a lot of people okay. from the sort of junior ranks whose qualifications hadn't built up that high who hadn't sort of been in long enough to get involved with professional registration and stuff like that they tend to go into the trades but they take a lot of it in so okay. i mean if you call an engineer on board but an engineer the physical side of that is the sparky and all the plumbing and yeah that transfer you got mm. you got a lot of transferable skills that cut straight across so after sort of five ten years um a weapons engineer becomes a sparky and they just go and tidy up the part 19 and carry on and take all that out with them um yeah yeah <laughs> Have you ever been tempted to, for example, go to like the defense sector, for example, like come home kind of thing, um, rather than the military? What what keeps you in the navy kind of thing? Um, it's it's really weird. I'm I'm, I'm a bit funny sort of myself with completing things. <laughs> if I start a box set, I want to complete it. Mm. It's a 22 year contract from 18 to 40. Once you do your 22, you're technically retired. You draw a pension mm. or a percentage of a pension. And it's that security. Really? Okay. So I've, I've done 17 okay. years and I want to complete it. So I've done, I've got six left to go. Mm. Um, I may extend, uh, I may move straight into industry, but I know I'll have a bit of financial security in the background with a, the small income trickling in for the rest of my life anyway. Um, so you are planning to go to that? You are planning after you retire yeah, carry kind on of work. thing to still carry on working and going into the um defense industry yeah so my next then. sort of goal is cng um i've got an application in the process now i'm just waiting for my msc transcript transcript okay. to come through to back that up yeah we're then looking at phd and after that um yeah yeah um after after that i'll still have a few years left to serve and it, it, i may take another five mm. just depends on what the career options are um as well as that, i've been at sea okay. for a long time and I, I'm, I'm tired of that so it's just sort of moving on for a little bit of stability a little bit of home life 
Um, but yeah, definitely, yeah, it'd probably be the defense area or something to do with infrastructure, mm. power stations, something like that, really. You um, yeah. wouldn't consider academia as a with a PhD? I'd consider it. I'll be honest, um, it'd be the pay and perks, pay perks and pension at that stage. So it, it's. Oh, yeah. Obviously, yeah. I mean, you qualify to go into a number of areas. Um, if somebody offered me a job Definitely. as a director of engineering as a senior engineer paying X, mm. if academia could offer a comparable pay packet or benefits packet mm. I'd, I'd definitely i'd love to um obviously if it was mm. if what they're offering was half of that but obviously you've got to factor into your stress and your work-life balance as well because yeah. actually do, you, do yeah. you take a lesser pay but then you don't have to think as much and you can go home happier um yeah yeah it, it, honestly it would honestly do it would 100%. definitely be on the cards but it would it would completely depend on the package mm. yeah when you do retire will you miss being able to go overseas and and doing everything that you've you've done almost certainly <laughs> almost certainly i whinge about it every day but i wouldn't change anything <laughs> i think there's an element of growing out of it and getting a little bit too old to keep up so i think there's all good things must come to an end so it'd be a, mm. I'd, I'd like to leave on a high with a good reputation than kind of outgrow it and leave bitter um whinging about the old days i'd, I'd like I'd, I'd like to quit while i'm ahead really yeah, <laughs> yeah no 100 percent. okay so <laughs> so pete um that comes to our final question um what advice would you give to a young person in the same position as you as in or even to any students out there who are thinking about going into the armed forces i'd say absolutely just go for it Absolutely, just go for it. Um, I made the mistakes being younger of thinking that um, certain pathways were closed because other people did that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. But I'd say, like, literally don't rule anything out and absolutely go for it. If you'd have asked me years ago if I was going for a PhD, I'd say other people did that. Yeah, definitely. Other, other mm -hmm. people did that. I mean, I was like, I'm the guy that sort of, as Mickey Flanagan put it, the kids from this school loaded down. Um, that was definitely that the, the approach I had is especially even looking at the military I was like other people go and be officers I don't do that I, I was going to go and be infantry or something like that but absolutely anything's achievable and even if it's not achievable directly or on day one you set a goal to make it achievable set a goal to satisfy the prerequisite keep going and just keep setting goals um, keep setting goals mm. look at what you want your final goal to be and set milestones even if there's hundreds of milestones just set them all you know it's like you want a phd fine you need you need you need an access course and you need a bachelor's and you need a master's if you want cng but you're not quite there get ing and work from it at least set yourself up find mm. your feet again and carry on and keep going up um if you'd have asked me 10 years ago about cng and phd i would have burst out laughing um <laughs> I, I literally it's <laughs> I've, I've got a cng interview lined up in a few weeks so it's like wow okay oh i'm you know what I mean? Back from my second trip to Faraday House to to sort of have a go and do that again. You nervous? It's, it's, it's got nothing on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my end was one of the most grueling interviews I've ever sat through, but it was brilliant. It was really sort of rewarding at the end. But yeah, I would say absolutely go for yeah. it and just don't don't assume that you can't because the people around you aren't or that no one's ever done it before. Just give it a go because the worst that happens is someone says no, and that's not a bad thing at the end of the day. Just absolutely go for it basically is my best mm -hmm. advice go, just go for it 
Um, because if you, I mean, you, it sounds so corny. If you aim for the stars, you'll still hit the moon. Yeah, don't use that. <laughs> yeah. Cut, cut, cut. <laughs> oh, we, 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 we got to now. <laughs> Can we make that the, the title of the podcast for uh, Pete here? Aim, aim, for, oh, aim, no. aim, aim for the stars, <laughs> reach the moon. <laughs> we do need a title. That's um, a list of cheesy things I wish were never recorded. <laughs> <laughs> We'll we'll t- we'll tag your we'll we'll tag your whole navy all your navy buddies as well you know don't worry yeah, yeah that's a cringe <laughs> moment right there <laughs> yeah but I mean yeah if you if you overreach um, then you'll at least land somewhere closer you'll land somewhere further than when you started mm. and go, go for it you'd absolutely yeah go. just don't Definitely, limit yourself yeah, kind of go thing for it. don't assume that you're not good enough mm. yeah that's that's really good <laughs> yeah. okay. So um, we'd like you to basically write a letter to uh, engineering uh, for us. Uh, would you be able yeah. to do that? Yeah, so strangely, he's on prepared earlier. He's a bit rhythmic, actually, so um, let's just see how this sounds when it goes out. Um, dear engineering, I need to say thank you for making me feel alive, and here's why. It started before I could walk with a Lego that connects to Duplo Blix and old circuit boards, little light bulbs, AA batteries, and copper wire, power PCs, go-karts, and tins of paint. It started with wiring a plug, filling jerry cans with fuel and blowing myself up. Getting electrocuted for fun, I ripped my mum's old beige tower PC to bits. It starts with a thousand failures, with a third project's gone wrong, and perfectly good bits of kit, toasters, kitchen appliances, radios and computers that will never ever work again because of the bits left over. Engineers nurtured a passion for asking why, never why not, but most importantly why yes, because why yes equals how. How did that work? Why am I so surprised that it did? The light bulb moment comes when the mass you avoided doing falls into place and you have to backtrack to ask why. When we ask if this will go wrong, engineering says maybe. Will it blow up? Hopefully. Will it be cool? Certainly. And then we say, I don't believe you. Prove it. And let's see. And I'll try not to hurt myself in the process, but I'll take a gamble to find out why. So thank you, engineering, for lighting a spark in a little boy's eyes, for fueling that fire and for encouraging me to ask why. And more importantly, why yes. Thank you for making me find out why everything is so amazing. Fantastic. Thank you. I think um, on behalf of me and Alex, um, I re- we really appreciate you coming on as well. As in, you being our first guest is pretty uh, <laughs> no worries, pretty hard to top. Not gonna lie. <laughs> no worries. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. So I've never done anything like this. It's been really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully it'll give you a lot of like publicity for when you do your PhD applications, and they'll say, "Oh, there's <laughs> there's Pete Spain. He wants to be with us." <laughs> <laughs> yeah.